I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, the host of this podcast and the author of the Thoughts on Money blog. And I'm here with my good friend who has been with us the last couple weeks, and I love having him here. Say hello to Mr. Sean Latimer. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Today, we are going to talk about an article I wrote called The Variation of Variables. And here's a fun thing. Since you don't get this in the article, I can tell you these little tidbits. I have a funny process for writing these articles. Um, This is how it goes down. During the week, I get an idea. Either it's from a conversation with a client or whatever it might be. And then I take my phone and I have the notes section. And I start just bullet pointing kind of the things I want to talk about. Can I make a guess? What? Go ahead. Do you put them all on like a sheet of paper, spread out across the room, and then let little Shepard like crawl the one and pick one up, and that's how you pick? That's a good guess, but no. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like you put them on sheets, and it's like Minority Report where I'm oh. like putting things together and all that. <laughs> no, what I end up doing, and this is exactly how I got through college, which is, I don't know if it's embarrassing. Everybody has their own strategy or approach, but I love doing things. I love the pressure. I love kind of, I don't want to say doing them at the last minute because I, I know I'm going to get done. So anyway, so I make these bullet points and throughout the whole week, I'm just thinking about this article. I haven't put in pen to paper, but I'm just thinking about it. Then um, this morning I wake up at 3 a.m. and I take all those thoughts and ideas and start to organize them into paragraphs and then try to get done as quickly as I can. So by the time I get to the office, there's some solidified article and then we do this podcast. That is a pretty cool fun fact. I, I believe it, though. I, I've, I've heard that in the past, too. I, I remember um, like speaking engagements where I'd have to speak to a group of people. The more time I've had to prep, I've had people tell me that I do better when I have less time and I just do it on the fly. So maybe there's something to be said to that. You have that uh, killer instinct sports mentality where you just you're not scared of the moment. Yeah, I don't want to give myself too too much credit because that 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 uh, that would pump up my ego. But uh, I don't know. I, I remember speaking at a, a church function and uh, doing a ton of prep work because it was kind of outside of my expertise. And uh, I ended up dumping it the night before and rewriting the whole thing. <laughs> um, so I guess that's just kind of how I operate. Nonetheless, this week's article um, is all about financial planning. And you read it this morning, so tell me what you got out of it. Let's ask some questions. Let's engage. Uh, Let's give a little bit more on the podcast than somebody would get from reading the article. Yeah, I'm glad that you wrote about this because it is something that comes up all the time. And I I don't think people really even understand how the financial planning mechanism works and how important it is. And you kind of mentioned it in the podcast. blog, so I don't don't want to take away from it, but there are such different results depending on the inputs and depending on where you go or who's doing it for you that it sometimes gives a really bad impression to clients or prospects because they don't want to go through the planning process because they've had a bad experience or they've lost trust or faith in the process. So even when you do go through it and give them a finished product that you have, you know, that you're proud of, they, they don't feel confident with the results. Yeah. And to give our listeners context, when you're using the word it, we're talking about the financial plan. This article was this idea that you can go get a financial plan created by different people and get different results. And that can be a frustrating process. Absolutely. And and I I, I for me, I always need to relate relate this to something else. You know, I have to simplify it in my brain. That's that's kind of how I work. So I opened the article talking about that funny video mm-hmm. we showed last week of this grandma and her toddler grandson trying to make cookies. And as she's going through her recipe, he's just like fistfuling the ingredients and trying to throw the sugar and butter in his mouth. It's funny, but what it made me think of is that chocolate chip cookies 
are simple, yeah. right? But everybody has their favorite chocolate chip cookie. Mm-hmm. So what's your favorite chocolate chip cookie? You know, it's funny. When I was reading your article, it did remind me of a neighbor friend of mine. I'll never forget. And I've only had him maybe a handful of times, but his mom made the best chocolate chip cookies I've ever had in my life. And even though it was more than 20 years ago, I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. And I felt like writing that, I, I, I think I wrote a sentence in there, something to the extent like, as I'm writing this, you will think of and remember the the flavor, the texture, everything about it and describe to yourself like what is that perfect cookie. So when we say, well, I'll, I'll pause real quick. I think mine right now is Crack Shack. Crack Shack has a really good <laughs> chocolate chip cookie with uh, salt on it. They put a lot of salt and it's, it's really good. I like it. Um, but nonetheless, when we say the word chocolate chip cookie, it's not all encompassing. It doesn't mean the same thing. Like in our hearts, there is this special chocolate chip cookie that stand above the rest. And that's where I start that next paragraph. And I say financial planning is a lot like chocolate chip cookies. You can have a bad cookie. You can have a bad financial plan. Yeah, 100%. And it, it related to a client uh, that came this week and was telling me this story about how his sister was shopping financial planners. And she was going to these different planners. And one of the vetting mechanisms that she was using is she wanted them to give her some insight to how the planning would look. So they're kind of all of them are mocking up this financial plan based on her resources and her goals and what she wants to achieve and her risk tolerance, all that stuff, right? And each one is delivering a different result. And I'm not saying a different result like minor differences. I like I'm saying one guy is saying to her or girl, whatever the financial planner was, um, you are going to leave such an exorbitant amount of wealth to your heirs based on this financial plan. Then somebody else is saying, hey, this financial plan is really tight. You might outlive your wealth. Like that is a very different uh, analysis of her situation. And what I talked about, how do you assess that? Like if you're the investor, the shopper of advisors, the consumer, do you just go with somebody who painted the rosiest picture? I, th- I think that there's a layer that we're we're kind of missing too, where if someone's shopping, they're they're doing their due diligence, right? And one thing that we do know is incentive drives behavior. So if the said planner advisor is trying to earn the business, you you have to imagine that they're walking into it with a lens that if I make the plan look great or if I make my investment process look better, I have a higher chance of them becoming a client. Or the other person might be thinking if I'm more realistic, then that's my angle to get them to become a client. And at the end of the day, you would want an unbiased opinion who's going to give you the most factual plan possible. Yeah, it's more about salesmanship Mm -hmm. than, yeah, and that's a really good point. And I didn't use the word salesmanship in the article, but I started to talk about this idea that financial planning is maybe more of an art than a science. And what I could relate to when she was, or he was telling me the story about his sister, was I remember you went to the same training as me. Yep. You go for a week to New York uh, when you first become an advisor, and you're going to go through this week-long training, uh, which is a little bit of a slog. But coming into it, they have you do some homework and they basically give you this fictitious client with these bullet points of who that person is, their risk tolerance, their expectations, their goals, their age, all of that. Enough details for you to turn around and make a financial plan. When you're at this week-long training, you're going to present this financial plan to uh, an actor that's going to play the client. But the real thing is that there's a management team around you. And you're, kinda, being, you're being videotaped and it's a big deal. Absolutely. You're being videotaped and they're assessing your ability to present. And maybe they're assessing more of your salesmanship than mm-hmm. your uh, competency. But when I was watching that happen, all of us having the exact same case study, 
and seen five, six, seven, eight different advisors present a different perspective of the plan. And I shouldn't use the word perspective because I want to even say they were basically saying different outcomes for this potential person we were doing this plan for. I was frustrated. I heard that. And I was hoping, I think when I experienced it, that, okay, at the end of the week, we're going to get graded. They're going to take all these financial plans and say, this was good, sufficient, insufficient, and they're going to separate the wheat from the chaff. But that never happened. So I walked away from that week and I was like, okay, what is this industry all about? And that frustration, like a lot of the time for me, it fueled me to want to learn more. So I read everything I could about financial planning and I listened to every podcast, read every blog, and I wanted to become kind of proficient in this trade. And in that journey, I started to learn that as a financial planner, you have a lot of freedoms. And when we start to say something like more of an art than a science, you are the artist. And as the artist, you can decide what you think these variables should be. You can uh, basically unknowingly write into the plan your worldviews, your preferences, your beliefs, and those things are going to drastically change the plan. Maybe maybe that's a good segue. Maybe you can kind of touch on some of the numbers. So what if who cares if someone says there's more inflation than others or if uh, returns are higher than others? Like how does that translate into dollars and cents? Yeah. So when you do a financial plan, and here, what's a good way to make an analogy? I'm not a sailor. So uh, I, this would be a bad analogy uh, maybe to give because I, I, it's not my expertise. But I'm guessing if you're in a big cruise ship or some sort of large sailboat and you're trying to get to some certain destination and you are one degree in the wrong direction, if you go long enough, you're going to miss your target by a lot. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. So this idea of trajectory. And if you start to modify something, um, whether how small it is, if it's a leverage point, um, and and I'm saying a leverage point, meaning that a small degree change in, like you said, inflation, rates of return or expenses could have a drastic change on where the actual end destination is. That stuff matters. And uh, I'm going to sidestep real quick. Again, not something I included in the blog, but I think people miss when I say leverage point what I mean. And would you like a funny story? Yeah, I love stories. So uh, I, growing up, or in my adulthood, I've been very engaged in the church. And since I was 18, I've been like a youth leader involved in uh, retreats for junior hires or uh, things for the high school group or whatnot. And I remember when we were younger, we took a group of, I think they were junior hires that were going into high school. And it was kind of like a coming of age trip, uh, camping trip, where we're going to be like real men's men. We're going to go camping and it was like in the snow and we did all this stuff so in order to get there we did this prep work we would do these hikes and i don't remember where we were hiking but uh these were a mischievous group of boys and uh i was a mischievous leader (laughs) so we would do funny things uh that were slightly mischievous we came across this boulder um and i remember this vividly but this boulder was like two stories high like it was huge and it's not like i'm going back and embellishing a story of like this fish was 53 pounds it was really like a rock (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly i'm serious this is a boulder and it was like at the edge of a cliff and we were thinking um how yeah i know this is bad (laughs) like if there's anybody there's a lot of trees down there there's no hikers maybe it's because i'm a parent but my first thought was like don't do it (laughs) no so we were like how could we get this boulder to fall off this like sharp cliff 
And um, it weighed way too much. Um, so there was nothing we were going to do. We, we, like, pushed it. All There was, like, eight of us pushed it, did this. Like, uh, like one kid kind of funnily tried to, like, run to it and, like, hit it with his shoulder. And we just laughed because it would – so nothing worked. But where does leverage come into play? Well, the, the, the boulder was uh, – like circular, right? Um, so we found a gigantic tree um, that was broken and that we could hardly all pick up and we wedged it in the side of the boulder and then all of us hung on one <laughs> side of the tree and it made the boulder roll and it rolled off the cliff and made like the loudest boom and shattered that I've ever heard. And I tell that story because I want you to remember what a leverage point is, is that eight of us could not accomplish pushing that down the the cliff but by using leverage by using this like not a stick right this large tree and wedging it in there we created a leverage point so we could accomplish more than what would have been believable um and in financial planning there is these variables that are leverage points and i wanted to get across in this article that there are Lots of different variable inputs, and some of them will be unique to your financial plan, and some of them will be kind of unique to any fi- – or not unique. Some of them will be uh, congruent across any financial plan, and I wanted to highlight a couple of those to basically say regardless of what your financial plan is, you should look at these items because these are leverage points. Makes sense. Um, so those leverage points we talked about were expenses. That's one. Rates of return. Inflation. Longevity. And then this idea, which I'll explain, of linear versus varying assumptions. So those five bullet points made up the meat of this article. Uh, And we'll start there, expenses. What's your experience been as a planner when you start to talk about expenses with clients? Well, to be honest, I I learned this just from experience because as I was reading your article, I think I've been guilty of this earlier in my career where I would say, you know, what are your expenses to a client? And they would give me a number and I go, great. I write it down and we start to put together a plan. But then there would be scenarios where it just wouldn't add up. And I go, well, you make this much per year. You paid this much in taxes. You saved this much in your retirement accounts. And you put this away in an emergency fund. And you gave money to your kids. Where did this extra $30,000 go? Because it, it would either be in your account still. And then as you go back to dotting the I's and crossing the T's, you realize, oh, you, you actually spend $30,000 more than you think. And uh being a leverage point, that's a big difference in a plan, especially when we're forecasting 40 years from now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. When we're talking about a cruise ship sailing a pretty long destination, we're understanding that uh, when you multiply or forecast or compound something like 30,000 over 40 years, it becomes absolutely a big deal. It's amazing too that aha moment when they realize like, oh, I don't spend that much. And I, I think most people are guilty of that where they go, how much is my mortgage or rent? And then they go, and then I have a car payment, and then I have this. And they kind of go down the list. But then once they get to like the the lifestyle creep expenses, the things you don't even think about, that's where people are way off. Yeah, you're one step ahead of me. That's exactly where I was going to go. Um, as an experienced planner like myself, when you ask that question, people do this thing where they kind of look up to the right, look into the sky, and they're kind of thinking through this. And they're like, okay. And they start with really small expenses, which is kind of funny. That's they're like, true. They're like, yeah. my auto insurance is this. <laughs> my cell phone bill is this. I pay cable this much, and then they do this mental math, and then they give you a number where you're like, they're like, okay, I think it's about four thousand a month, and you're like, oh, okay, that's forty eight thousand a year, and you make four hundred thousand a year. Um, so where does this leftover, like you said, fill in the blank, uh, go to? And they're always like, well, that can't be right. 
And then you're like, oh, okay. I, and this is kind of my evolution as, as a planner is that I stopped asking that single question. And I kind of began backing into the number and telling them what I think the expense is based on the, all the other inputs rather than kind of start this debate on how much they spend. Right. Because it can be an embarrassing point, too. Yeah, they don't want to pull up credit card receipts and be like, oh, you're right, I spend way too much than I should. It, it, it can sometimes make them feel uncomfortable, which is the last thing we want to do. Yeah, and if you dive into that credit card, what will happen is you'll show, oh, okay, for the month of August, you spent X. Well, that was kind of a one-off. Like, we had this special vacation, we had a special trip, and what I'm trying to get across to people, there will always be one-offs, and that's absolutely okay. So I, I talked about here, my very first Thoughts on Money article was about expenses. And if I tell you an article is about expenses and I'm a financial planner, you're probably going to think it was about budgeting. It wasn't. It was about awareness. And I was just saying, I, I really don't care how much you spend. I want to know that you know how much you spend. Because if you have that awareness and we've identified that's the lifestyle you want to live, that can dictate all the planning. Will that mean you might need to work five extra years or that you might need to save a little bit more each year? It absolutely will. Expenses is one of the biggest leverage points. Um, but it's important to say if you have a financial planner that just says, what are your expenses? And you give them the answer and you put that into the plan. Man, oh man, you better be right. Because most of the time when I ask that question, people are large percentages off. And again, not an embarrassing point. Um, it's just culturally, that's how we live. We make money. We spend money. We don't always kind of balance that checkbook to get a clear understanding of uh, how much came out of our pocket. That next le leverage point I talked about was rates of returns. And I'll give you that same question. What have your experience been as a planner when it comes to rates of return? Well, I think that it depends on the inputs. And it really does come down to the planner, like you said, the artist. And I've seen in the past where, and I mentioned that people lose confidence in the planning because they don't feel the results are realistic. And you talk about it in the article, but it's true. If you put that fixed income is going to generate a 4% uh, interest rate at using 10-year treasuries, it's just not accurate. And if you're projecting that over 30 years, it's not right. And that is going to make a big difference. So I, I think that there are a lot of times where, and this is maybe not to be a knock on other advisors, but I have seen where people will go into a review meeting or a financial plan update and they do look at it and go, oh, this doesn't look good. What if we make the return, you know, returns actually might look like this in equities. Let's change that. What does that do to the plan? Oh, it makes it successful. Perfect. Let's go to the meeting with that. And not that they're dishonest, but in a way it can be deceiving. Yeah, like we talked about last week on this idea of control the controllables. If you're going to make an adjustment on any variable, don't ratchet up what the expected returns are just to make the plan pencil. If anything, you should be a little bit more conservative and do a what if. A, let's let's think of more worst case scenario. What if this happens? What if that happens? That way you can really show the client that you know we're trying to think through every process that's possible. Yeah, one of the things I've been doing this year with clients is I have been ratcheting down the return expectations and not to make a more gloomy outcome, but just to say, hey, if things did play out like a worst case scenario, how's this thing work? Um, and put it through that stress test and that challenge. Because for a lot of my clients, I start to ratchet down returns and there's still like a healthy leftover. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you can absolutely do this other dream item number three. Because even when I ratchet down the plan in kind of a worst case scenario, this still works. And the example I gave here, I wanted to make it simple. So I said, okay, um, what do most financial planning software do? 
it uses these assumptions on rates of return based on historical returns. Mm -hmm. And most planners are treating that software like it's gospel. So they're not questioning that um, assumption or prediction or forecast. So the question I ask is like, let's keep it really simple. Over the last 30 years, and I wrote it down in here, what was it? Something like 4.86% or something was yep. the, the, the annualized return on 10-year treasuries. 10-year government treasuries over the last 30 years have averaged about 4.86% return. If you plug that return assumption into your plan, it's going to create an outcome, right? Well, what in history has been the best predictor of what future – I'm talking about history, but what is future returns? How do we predict future returns on the 10-year U.S. government treasury? The best way to predict it is look at the current yield. Mm -hmm. The current yield is 0.63%. So historically, 4.86. Today, 0.63. If you run those different numbers, compounding at 4.8 versus 0.6 on a 10-year period on a million dollars, creates a $550,000 difference on 10 years. So these inputs on rate, rate of return really matter. And as the consumer, the investor, the shopper of financial planners, you should be challenging not in a derogatory way, but just asking, how are these rates of returns assumed? Because yes, you can read any textbook that tells you that the S&P 500 over the last 100 years returned X. Does that mean that that's a good assumption going forward? I don't know. That's a conversation that should be had. Uh, next leverage point, we're going to transition over to inflation. Just to define for the listeners, inflation is just this idea that the things that we want to spend money on get more expensive each year. You want to clarify that, that those expenses are not drastic. Right? It's an uptick of hardly, a couple percent. Hardly noticeable. Yeah. Uh, that idea of the boiling frog, mm -hmm. um, that the heat goes up a little bit and it just goes unnoticed until uh, you look back and you're like, wow, even a 3% inflation 23 years later means things are twice as expensive. Frog soup. Frog soup. Exactly. <laughs> I've never had frog soup, but I'm, I imagine that's how they make it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, so when we think about inflation, it really matters what those assumptions are. And it's not as simple as saying, hey, I read a blog that said I should ask about inflation. What assumption are you using? And then the planner's like, well, I'm using 2%. You're like, okay, cool. I asked that question. Well, no. Is 2% for the expenses and for the Social Security? Um, do you have a pension? Is there a cost of living adjustment that's applied in the plan? Do you actually get a cost of living adjustment? You have to look through the nuances of the plan and make sure that that inflation makes sense. Makes sense. Next um, point we were talking about was longevity. This is my favorite one. Favorite one. Okay, go ahead. So how many times have you had a client say, well, there's no way I'm going to live that long? And my first thought is, okay, people want to – they want to first and guess when they're going to pass away, which is kind of a morbid thought to begin with. But how terrible would it be to run out of money when you're 93 years old? Wouldn't that be like the worst thing you can think of? Yeah, you've, you would be the – you'd be le the least prepared and ready to make a good decision on yeah. what you're going to do for the next X amount of years at that point in time. Yeah. So I, I, you mentioned in the article, you know, planning till 100. Um, some people might think it's overkill, but I definitely don't think so. Uh, the, the idea is to set you up for a successful plan the rest of your life. We don't know what that means. And what happens when you choose 100 rather than 90? Well, depending on the person, those last 10 years, if they've done a good job saving and it's compounding, those could be the greatest increases of wealth for their family that they have. Yeah. As we talked about last year with Buffett, this idea of lots of years of compounding, that's not where I was going. But the other place I was going is that if you use 100 rather than 90, 
you're actually making a more conservative financial plan. Oh, of course. Because if it can last to 100... It can last till 90. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I went through this idea of if you look at the average life expectancy in the United States, you might say, oh, it's, well, 78 years old. Well, you're not average. Um, averages ha- assume that some people are going to die earlier and some people are going to die later. And we talked about this uh, idea that the, the, the Census Bureau says that each household is 2.53 yeah. people in a household. Have you ever seen a 0.53 person? I don't think so. And don't make fun of me because my height. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not David. I won't do that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, so this idea of what you pick for longevity, man, it's going to matter a lot. Um, and another thing that you just don't want to have a financial planner adjust to say, hey, the financial plan didn't work till 95. Let's just run it at 85. And oh, it pencils now. So you're good to go. Right. And what was that last topic we covered? Linear versus varying. Yeah, what did you gather from that? Because it's it's more obscure. I don't think that one was as obvious. No, this one hits home for me because I I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, okay, let's run a plan again, you know, year over year, and let's look at the last year's plan versus this year's plan. And I want the projection to be almost exact to the actuals of the accounts today. It doesn't work that way. And I, I don't think that people necessarily understand that because they think it's more of a science where especially if they're less... Uh, experience in the markets, they just think, well, this is the plan. It should be this exact amount every year, right? Yeah. The plan assumes a rate of return of five and a half percent. Last year, we only got four and a quarter. What happened? What'd you do? <laughs> yeah. It's your fault, Sean Latimer. <laughs> it, it, I, don't, um, I don't know if I've ever, ever had anyone blame me, but I've had those questions come up where they're like, why would it be different? And maybe to someone who isn't as experienced, it is a fair question, but anyone that knows capital markets knows that the average of a return over a set of time is not going to be the exact same every year. It's going to vary. Yeah, it's absolutely going to vary. And that's the tough thing with financial planning. And I I put this in the article. There are ways that we're modeling things like Monte Carlo analysis and stuff like that to solve for this variability. But when you're looking at a one-page cash flow projection, it is static. I mean, those assumptions are baked into there. And that's okay. And the, the point that I made in the article is that If you want to understand what financial planning is, it's not a game of darts. You're absolutely not going to hit bullseyes on guessing these assumptions and variables. It's more of a game of horseshoes where the intention is to get as close as you can. Mm -hmm. And the reason we use things like age 100 or lighter rates of return or maybe even heavier uh, rates of inflation is because those conservative assumptions make it so as a financial planner, you can do what? You can under-promise and over-deliver. And this is absolutely a field where you want to under-promise and over-deliver. That's right. And you also touch on it later in the article when you talk about making sure that data is updated and clean. Maybe you can touch on that. Yeah. In computer science, I love this term. They, they always say garbage in, garbage out. And it's basically saying that if you're using anything data science to make some sort of conclusion, what is the first absolute thing that you need? You need good data. So this idea of garbage in, garbage out, or how would you say that, GIGO? I think they use it as an acronym, Um, is basically saying is that if you don't get good data up front, don't even run the analysis because you're going to get a bad assumption coming out on the other end. And that absolutely applies to financial planning. Like you need to slow down. You need to wrestle with this. You need to put good information in. Otherwise, the financial plan is absolutely useless. Um, And that means there needs to be collaboration between you and the advisor because it's not going to be easy for the advisor to decipher what expenses are. It's not going to be easy for the client to decipher what returns should be. That's why two people need to sit at the table and collaborate to make a financial plan together. 
And guess what? The financial plan is absolutely not set in stone. Financial plans are, and they're not really, but I say it this way, they're made in pencil. The reason that they're made in pencil is because you need to make adjustments on a yearly basis. Yeah, because the, there's something called life, and it throws things at you that you did not expect. You know, that kid getting married or helping them buy a house or you, find, you have grandkids now and you're going to move. Things change. Yeah, life throws you a whole lot of curveballs. And this idea is that our profession isn't financial plan. Our profession is financial planning means that it's constantly something that you go back to. So whether my clients like it or not, they know every time we have a meeting, we're going to open the financial plan. What changed? Is this still the intentions? What other adjustments do we want to make? What other assumptions or aspirations or goals do we want to bake into here? Because what happens sometimes is if you're ahead of the curve of where you plan to be, what can you do? You start adding more goals in there. Um, If you are older... And in reality, there's just kind of less years to live. You can also make really big adjustments because your withdrawal rates can actually be a little bit higher. Uh, Longevity determines a lot of that stuff. Some of this might be obvious to you and some of it might not be. But that's where that collaboration becomes so important. And I just really want to encourage people to ask questions because you don't have to be a genius when it comes to financial planning. There is some common sense to be had. But if you ask good questions, it challenges the artist that crafted this for you um, to basically stop and think. And if one of those answers doesn't make sense, then you should say, hey, explain that to me a little bit more. You're using in this financial plan an assumption that my rate of return is going to be 11%. Tell me more. Why? Good question. And I, I like what you said kind of throughout all these questions is that as you get more experience as a financial planner, there is it starts to rhyme. There's some similarities from different people that you meet with and kind of how the human psyche works and the brain and how we compute all this. And it helps you as a planner to make a more optimal or efficient or fitting plan for your clients. Very true. It's definitely not a one size fits all. Oh, absolutely not. Because what we talked about today were variables that really apply to everybody. But are there variables that apply to one person uniquely? Yeah. Like, should I pay off my house? That might be a different answer for Sean than it is for Trevor. Very true. And that's where we'll wrap it up. We're going to ask that you rate the podcast, leave comments, send emails if you'd like. It's slatimer at thebonsongroup.com and tcummings at thebonsongroup.com. As I said in the article, send us your questions, your comments, and your cookie recipes. Uh, And we'll be back next week with more of our Thoughts Thoughts on on Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. 
The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.